This is Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth. Hello and welcome to Theology on the Go. I'm your host, Jonathan Master, and we are joining today in the middle of an interview that I conducted with Dr. Robert Kolb on the life, ministry, and influence of Martin Luther. One of the works of Luther's that is most read today and I think has most purchase on many who might not even be Lutheran but are Protestant or interested in theology is the bondage of the will that great response to Erasmus. I wonder if you could set that in some context. Who was Erasmus, and could you describe Luther's essential clash with him? What were the issues at stake there? Erasmus was perhaps the most famous and and most influential, most prominent intellectual north of the Alps. A few years older than Luther, but he had established a reputation before Luther. His service to scholarship was great. He had edited uh, some of the ancient church fathers and finally edited the Greek New Testament in in 1516. Luther used his so-called paraphrases, a kind of commentary on the New Testament, and usually positively got some of his important insights, uh, were grounded at least in the paraphrases. And then he he used Erasmus's Greek text for his translation of the, the New Testament. But he recognized fairly early on in their relationship they never met personally, but they corresponded and, and, um, and also corresponded through mutual friends. But Erasmus was concerned about the reform of the church, and Luther recognized early on that Erasmus was concerned about the moral and institutional reform of the church, as had many before him in the, in the later Middle Ages. But Luther was concerned about the doctrine, the teaching of the church, as well as institutional forms and, and ethical issues. So... Erasmus wanted to prove that he wasn't part of this dangerous movement that was gathering around Luther. And so in 1524, he wrote a diatribe, which we understand is something not so pleasant, but a diatribe was really a kind of peaceful exchange of ideas. But he went to the heart of Luther's system, which depends on recognizing that God is almighty and that God is in control and complete control of our salvation. For Erasmus, The chief question was, how are people going to behave? How are we going to keep good order in society? And he thought it was necessary then to place some responsibility on the human being for the performance of the kind of works that make society function well, good works. Luther also insisted not just on some partial responsibility, but really on the total responsibility of the the human being. God holds us totally responsible, but at the same time, Luther had experienced himself that he could not, on his own, with his own powers, caught in sin, uh, come up to God's standards. And above all, he could not keep the first commandment as he explained it, fearing, loving, and trusting in God above all things. So he took a long time. He really didn't want to take on Erasmus in public. He respected Erasmus as an older scholar. But finally, a year or so after the diatribe had come out, Luther replied. He replied in the same style as Erasmus, and Erasmus didn't follow his own title. Erasmus used the form of a university disputation. He had not been much at the university, and so Luther was just a whole lot better at taking off the gloves, taking out the the very sharpened sword. And so he's um, 
He's very sharp in his critique of how Erasmus is trying to reason. But Luther's basic concern was the comfort of the sinner. And if the sinner is going to depend at all on his or her own performance in any way, then all is lost. Because we can say God's grace covers us 99.9%, but if we don't add our 1%, whether it's just turning to to God uh, on our own or, or whatever it is, we're lost because we'll always focus back on ourselves. So for Luther, it was the heart of the gospel. Did Christ really die and rise to forgive all of our sins? And is he totally in control of our, our lives? Uh, that was the key issue. Luther later said, uh, this can be a dangerous book, so read it very carefully. And he didn't talk a lot about predestination later. He, he looked rather to God's word, his word of promise in its oral and written and sacramental forms to give assurance. Uh, but he, he didn't abandon the idea that, as it says in Ephesians 1, before the foundations of the world, God chose uh, you and me to be his own and has uh, therefore, through uh, what later Lutherans would call the means of grace, brought us the assurance of the promise in Christ. I want to look at one other aspect of of Luther's life and ministry, and that's his marriage. Um, we can picture those famous portraits of, of Luther and his wife, and I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about how Luther's marriage ended up shaping that sort of second half of his ministry, why was it so significant for his life and legacy? He didn't want to marry because as a, as a condemned heretic, uh, a friar who had married a nun, and as a condemned outlaw, he knew that if uh, the protection of his uh, rulers in Saxony ever broke down, he'd be a dead man. He had reason to fear, although we don't have much indication that he was really afraid of this, that an assassin could come through the borders, come over the borders of Saxony and, and get him and claim to be a, well, would be a hero for his Roman Catholic opponents. So he didn't think he was a very good candidate, but Katharina von Borja had escaped uh, from the nunnery. She was uh, 15, 16 years younger than, than Luther. But she fixed her eye on him. He rejoiced to marry, saying it was a way to spite the, the devil and the pope. The marriage probably wasn't founded on what we would call romantic love, but it developed something uh, that must have been like our romantic love. Uh, their expressions of, e of fondness for each other are just wonderful. Uh, they had six children, experienced all the tragedies of family life, uh, one daughter, Elizabeth, died uh, at about a year, and another daughter uh, died at 13 or 14, Magdalena. Uh, and uh, one son struggled with uh, alcohol uh, problems. So uh, their marriage had all of the problems that marriages encounter then and still encounter today. Um, but at the same time, it, it was a model of Christian care for one another, and, and Luther tended, as many people did, toward what 16th century people called melancholia. It's at least very similar to what we might call depression. And Katharina had a way of bringing the Word of God and bringing a little bit of humor and other devices to, to um, bring him back to a normal look, look at the world around him. Uh, and so uh, 
we can see how their conversations uh, actually fed both of them spiritually. But I think that the, the fact that Katharina had been in, in, in the cloister herself, uh, had sung the psalms in the, in the order of seven prayers of the day and so forth, uh, aided her in actually being a theological dialogue partner as well. And she was something Luther was absolutely not, someone who had a sense of the value of a Groschen. She knew how to manage the economy of the household, and Luther gave away money uh, freely and had no sense of, of hanging on to anything. I suppose he had learned that in the cloister. And uh, Katharina actually ran their household, so it was always filled with people. They were given the black cloister where uh, he had lived as an Augustinian. And uh, so they had lots of room, and they had family, students. They even had the electress, the wife of the Margrave of Brandenburg, whose husband was uh, not permitting her to practice her evangelical faith, and she fled uh, to Wittenberg and, and lived also suffering from depression um, with the Luthers. And uh, so it, it was a kind of wild and woolly household, uh, but one in which there was a lot of learning and a lot of loving going on. What is something that people believe about Luther, something, uh, some sort of popular conception of who he is that you would like to disabuse people of? In other words, what what is wrong in our popular conception about Luther? What is one thing that you wish people knew about this man and the effect of his work today? Uh, two things come to mind Im- immediately. One is a more general picture of his personality, that he he was increasingly cranky, and uh, I just uh, heard of a guide somewhere in Germany who says he suffered from dementia as an older man. He was cranky. He, he was discouraged that the gospel hadn't uh, created uh, purer lives uh, in Wittenberg. He had moments when he simply didn't look at how lively a, a congregation of believers there actually was in, in Wittenberg. Uh, and his own uh, knowledge of the struggle with sin that goes on every day in the lives of all Christians, whether they realize it or not, he should have been a little more charitable to his fellow Wittenberger. But so he, he was a a strong personality. He had highs and lows that somebody like me just doesn't have. Um, and so uh, he is angry. He is frustrated that the gospel hasn't had more of an impact although he did believe that the church is always a remnant uh, as well. So I wish people could see his personality uh, in a little bit more holistic fashion. I suppose the opposite end of that spectrum is particularly Lutherans, but I think not only Lutherans. He really belongs to the whole church. But people who have read something of Luther's and really like him and then um, uh, somehow uh, think he never did any wrong, and he was a interesting and fascinating colleague, and I would have loved to have had him as a colleague, but he wasn't an easy colleague by any means. The specific thing that I think we often misinterpret is is his uh, attitude on the peasants' revolt. He criticized the peasants. He His own father's family had been agricultural peasants. His father uh, moved through what we might call the mining peasantry into being a small-time entrepreneur. Um, but he knew peasant life, but, but where his grandparents were peasants, uh, things had gone pretty well in the 15th century as the recovery from the Black Death progressed. 
and they were relatively prosperous. And he encountered peasants in the marketplace in Wittenberg who, who cheated as they sold their wares, uh, just like uh, the merchants did, and he, he criticized them all. So he was a critic of peasants and um, patricians, but he was also a, a sharp critic of princes. He told pastors if they didn't to criticize injustice in the practice of their princes, they would um, be guilty of co-conspiracy with the princes to arouse the people to rebellion and, and bringing God's judgment upon both princes and preachers. He was mainly concerned about disorder in society. Uh, he had heard reports of the peasants' revolt that had brought uh, really um, uh, pillage and rape and murder to many areas in southern Germany. And so he was concerned about the restoration of public order, just as people in the United States were uh, 20 years ago or 30 years ago when, well, I guess it's 40 years ago already, when riots were uh, going on here. So um, I, I think that that particular event is, is very often misinterpreted. What's ignored is how sharply critical he was of princes. Uh, he was not the toady of princes, as you uh, see sometimes, but, um, but his own prince. He criticized for, um, for his uh, drinking too much, and he criticized him for his um, refusal to discipline his courtiers who were exploiting the poor uh, in too many ways. So that, that's a misimpression, I think, of Luther that, that many people have. Last question, Dr. Kolb. Um, if a listener is intrigued by any of these aspects of, of Luther's life or, or simply is just sort of, you know, hearing about Luther as his name is in the air today in 2017, where's a good place to start? Are there are there good introductory secondary books that you would recommend to people? Are there Are there works of Luther that you would advise people to start with? Where should someone begin? In terms of Luther's own works, I would say um, the best somewhat short piece is his Freedom of a Christian. Uh, the Latin title was On Christian Liberty. Uh, a friend of mine says this is the true liberation theologian because he, he talks in, in on the freedom of a Christian. First of all, about the fact that we are freed from everything that would take our life away from us, from, from the oppression of death and behind that uh, our sinfulness God's wrath against our sin, uh, the law's accusation, uh, and the power of Satan above all. But that freedom then, Luther says, uh, binds us to the neighbor in love. I'd like to translate that as a systematician, systematic theologian. I would like to translate that as we are freed from all these things that turn us in on ourselves, as Luther would talk about us as sinners, and open us up to being truly human again and being able to serve the neighbor and place our lives at the, at the disposal of others. So I think that's a very good place. Um, those who have um, more time and want to get really, I think, into the depths of, of Luther's thought, reading the whole of the Galatians Commentary of 1531. In Luther's works in English, it's volumes 26 and 27. Uh, actually, 27 contains the 1519 Galatians Commentary as well. Uh, but there he lays out his understanding of justification, and his understanding of justification always is the bestowal of this righteousness in God's sight um, without condition, just the gift of God through faith in Christ that then turns us into obedient people who are actively uh, righteous 
because we our faith recognizes that God, God's pronouncement of, of our righteousness means that we are truly righteous in his sight, which is where reality uh, resides. I would say that the, the best uh, biography of Luther is now Scott Hendricks's Martin Luther Visionary Reformer. It's um, a book that was published over a year ago, maybe almost two years ago now, um, and he does the best uh, job of combining the, the theological uh, red threads that run through Luther's life with, um, with the story of his life and with the fascinating little details that make him such an interesting figure. In terms of a summary of his theology, I, I like my own, Martin Luther, Confessor of the Faith, um, as a kind of overview of, of his theology, of course. Dr. Kolb, thank you so much. This has been a privilege to talk with you, and thank you for your work, which I have benefited from. I would echo your commendation of your own book and actually encourage our, our listeners to to look up more of what you've written because it's been an immense help to me and I know to many others. So thank you very much, and thanks for your time today. Thank you, Jonathan. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of Theology on the Go. We're particularly focused on Luther this year because of the anniversary, the 500th anniversary of the nailing of the 95 Theses. We'd like to also offer you a free MP3. If you visit placefortruth.org, you can download Martin Luther's text, an MP3 of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Remember that we can't put on programs like this or any of the other things that we do without your support. So if you are able to give us a gift, we'd very much appreciate it. And thank you once again for listening to Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth.